Welcome to the Insights Podcast by UNSW Law Society. The production team would like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is made, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This episode is sponsored by Ashurst, a global law firm with a reputation for high performance, a wealth of industry experience, and a refreshingly open and diverse culture. With offices globally and across Australia, Ashurst has achieved Band 1 Chambers recognition in the Asian Pacific region for employment law, representing notable clients such as Woolworths and the Commonwealth Government of Australia. The firm has an impressive reputation for large-scale industrial relation disputes and deals with employment aspects of M&A and compliance. Combining an understanding of businesses' commercial interests and ability to handle complex matters, Ashurst is a leading firm in this area of law. Today we are joined with Trent Sevens, a partner in the Ashurst employment team. Trent specialises in complex litigation matters, providing advice and appearing for clients in proceedings in Commonwealth and New South Wales courts and tribunals. So welcome, Trent. Thanks very much. Let's start with a little bit of introduction for you. Um, When we hear about big law firms, our mind immediately kind of turns to busy schedules and lots of meetings. Can you tell us a little bit about what your day in the life looks like? Yeah, sure. And if I can take today as maybe an example. So I specialise in industrial relations, employment and also work health and safety. So today I've been working on uh, prosecution for a Commonwealth government uh, regulator and preparing evidence and also um, working towards a schedule for the prosecution hearing. Um, A tricky question has arisen about whether or not a witness can give evidence from Egypt and whether or not there's a problem with giving an oath or affirmation um, in a foreign country. So we're working through that. Uh, I'm also working on a work health and safety matter for a um, gig economy client who has a compulsory notice that they need to answer from a safety regulator. Um, I've also had a discussion with a client on bargaining for a new enterprise agreement um, and also preparing a response for a general protections claim, which is a type of individual employment um, application under the Fair Work Act. So a fair bit of sort of varied types of matters across those three areas. Right. Okay. So in terms of like the clients that you deal with, are they mostly like large corporations and businesses? Yeah, so we work for um, very significant private sector clients, um, so blue chip clients and um, also um, privately owned um, large clients, both in Australia, but also who have a global presence. Um, Ashurst is a global law firm and our employment practice um, runs through um, obviously Australia um, to each of the states but also through the Asia Pacific we've got a hub in Singapore and also capability throughout uh, the rest of the Asia Pacific and then we've got a um, a group of lawyers based in London, Paris, Frankfurt um, and also in Milan who provide advice through the UK and the EU. So we provide advice to clients with that sort of global reach um, and also pretty significantly, uh, at least in this state, the New South Wales government, but also various other state governments and the Commonwealth government as well. So just large 
very, very of, large. Yeah, and in lots of everywhere. different industries. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Uh, so you personally have almost two decades of experience mm-hmm. at Ashurst. Yep. How have you found working in this profession and the work you do in employment law specifically different from what you've experienced at university? Yeah, sure. Well, I my background before I came to Ashurst or Blake Dawson Waldron, as it was when I first started, uh, I was a human resources practitioner at BHP. So. I already had some sort of practical experience in dealing with um, employment-related matters as well as collective industrial relations matters. Um, But I think the critical things that I find from my university studies to what I do um, here at Ashurst is, of course, the practical application of those laws, um, as well as there being no sort of bright line between when I'm working on um, an employment or industrial relations matter or um, bringing to bear various different both skills and knowledge across evidence, procedure, contract law, statutory interpretation and you know sometimes admin law as well. So sort of bringing together all of those different areas of knowledge and then the practical application of them. Um, I think the other thing which is pretty critical is one in employment law you're dealing with the slice of someone's life, their working life. Um, So both with their employer, but sometimes um, obviously into their sort of social life as well. Um, And also then the commercial considerations for employers, um, which are are pretty critical. So those sorts of things, some of the the sort of personal and social aspects and the commercial ones, not ones that you really get to sort of practice or have to deal with um, at university, but um, certainly day by day, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, definitely. And I think like at university, it's a lot of more of like a safety blanket I guess with the things that you learn so it's less interconnected between subjects compared to when you practice yeah Uh, so next question is a lot of people have the perception that working at a large law firm entails sacrifices from enjoyable activities in your personal life which is certainly not true I'm sure Um, so what are some of the activities or hobbies you enjoy doing outside of work yeah, well, sort of pre-COVID, um, I did a fair bit of travel. I still do some travel, although not much international recently, but throughout Australia um, as the state borders have reopened. Um, I was also very interested in uh, food, being a foodie perhaps is the way to describe it. I'm not alone in that, I don't think, but you know, going to, to nice restaurants, which combines with some of the travel as well. Um, and then in the summertime, I do... Um, sort of stand-up paddleboarding and kayaking and uh, trying to catch fish occasionally, which isn't all that successful. Uh, and then in the winter, a bit of um, snow skiing, but um, uh, my skills aren't quite up to um, perhaps uh, the aspirations of some of my friends that I go with, but that's what I do in the, in the winter. Yeah. And do you find like it's a good work-life balance that you've achieved? Yeah, look, I think uh, particularly as we're coming uh, out of, or we're, we're, we're taking the legacies of the, the COVID pandemic and moving away from being in lockdown, which I don't think anyone really enjoyed, but certainly working from home, um, we're, we're definitely moving into a um, hybrid working model where a lot of people are working from home still part-time, um, although usually working full-time. So you know, on average um, here within the firm, 
Uh, we have uh, a number of people who are here, obviously, five days a week. Others, though, who are um, working in um, some of the sort of um, aspects of their personal lives into being able to work from home and enjoying that sort of flexibility. And I'm, you know, probably one of those. Um, my family and uh, my residence is in Wollongong, even though I work here in Sydney. So not having to do that commute every day is a benefit. Um, and so, yeah, just enjoying that sort of extra time that I, I do get sometimes with that working from home. That's good, yeah. And I think that's something that the pandemic has allowed to yeah, happen, which is a good definitely. thing. Uh, okay, let's move on to your practice area then, which is employment law. Yep. Can you explain how the Fair Work Act and any other relevant legislation govern the work you do? Sure. Um, in employment, uh, the Fair Work Act is the primary piece of legislation that we refer to. It sits on my desk. Um, I open it up multiple times per day. Um, and, you know, it's there, obviously, to um, provide underpinning terms and conditions of employment as part of the National Employment Standards, the safety net um, to workers. But then you have provisions in that in which modern awards, um, so industrial instruments, are created by the Fair Work Commission or are varied and enforced, and so we give clients to advice on those industrial instruments. Um, I mentioned before advising clients on bargaining, which I did today, so it has a regime obviously for dealing with bargaining and some of the things that surround it, such as good faith bargaining requirements and protected industrial action. Um, and then also it has provisions in relation to individual um, rights in relation to termination or other types of adverse action. So unfair dismissal regimes, I think, or the general protections regime, sham contracting elements. Um, so all of those areas we both give advice on, we run litigation in relation to it. Um, and then there are a whole series of procedural aspects which are also in the Act. So the powers of the Fair Work Commission and the powers of the Fair Work Ombudsman. Um, so we regularly look at that um, without expanding on that too much more, yeah. work health and safety legislation across each of the states. We also advise um, on the Work Health and Safety Acts, the Model Act, uh, which has been adopted everywhere except for Victoria. Um, so that's the other piece of legislation that we regularly okay. use. Uh, but there are a multitude of other acts that touch on employment or touch on the work that we do that we refer to every day. And I'm sure it's a lot of like cross-checking as well, just to make sure. Yeah, that's right. So within our field, we touch on um, human rights legislation, so anti-discrimination acts, uh, both at the state and federal level, modern slavery laws and the reporting requirements under them, workers' compensation. Um, we touch on together with our tax team, payroll tax, superannuation. Um, and then in admin law, there's other um, regimes that we need to be familiar with, right. particularly to advise the government. Yeah, okay. You talked a bit about using federal legislation and also state legislation. So under what circumstance would you use either one? Uh, there's, there is a, a very helpful divide um, for the Fair Work Act um, between state and federal. So uh, during the era of, uh, and this will be just a historical reference for most of your listeners, uh, but the era of work choices, uh, effectively uh, that saw the industrial relations regime move primarily to the federal sphere, other than for certain state government employees who stayed under state legislation. So effectively, the majority of our clients and their employees are covered by the Fair Work Act. Um, so we're operating in this federal sphere um, with that legislation. 
legislation, but also then in the tribunals and courts that we're dealing with. For safety law, it is um, wholly state and territory based. So um, that's when we're primarily dealing with um, state laws. Um, in employment, pure employment law, the law of contract, um, often we venture into restraints of trade, which then has an intersection with state law because right. um, there's some legislation, the Restraints of Trade Act, for example, in New South Wales, that mm. is state-based. Right. You mentioned a lot of like admin law and contracts and things like that, which yep. I didn't actually expect to yep. be in employment law, but it does make sense. Yeah, yeah, and we we also, with safety, we do traverse into criminal law as well. So it's not not just purely civil law. We do move into criminal law because work health and safety prosecutions are criminal. So we get to understand both the criminal process and also the standards that apply to prosecutors. So you've previously done another episode with Ashurst itself for a podcast. Um, hang on, now I've lost. Let me try again. <laughs> okay. So, so with Ashurst in a previous podcast episode from the Ashurst Work Health and Safety podcast episode two, you discussed the idea of the Great Resignation and how it has not affected Australia as much. How do you think the current legislation prevents this and supports our workers post-pandemic? Yeah, look, the Great Resignation, which has been a feature of the discourse primarily in the United States, um, in some parts in Europe, um, has really not been seen as a trend here in Australia. There is a shift to uh, some heightened resignations um, over the last quarter, but it's only 0.014 of a percent of increase in resignations, so that's pretty minimal. Um, So I think... uh, in a tight labour market, and now we've obviously got unemployment sitting at about 4% or lower, um, you do see uh, that there is um, a great willingness on behalf of employers to put a value proposition to employees um, that is attractive to them, including some of the working from home arrangements that we've been talking about, but also with the sort of burgeoning economy, um, you would expect that that will also result in uh, perhaps enhanced um, salaries or wages and other conditions. Um, But for those who decide that they want a a change in the way in which um, they want to work with their employer or they want to work more generally, perhaps they also want a location change. Um, then we may see some people making those individual choices. But um, I think it has, uh, while there has been that shift during the course of the pandemic and as we come out and sort of the other side of it and we're not completely out of it, we are starting to see actually a shift back to people perhaps moving back into cities, back into city-based jobs. Um, But look, I think in relation to your question about how does legislation protect workers who make that choice, um, I think ultimately um, you know, it's a matter for each individual to, to make their choices. The legislation will provide them remedies if they thought that they had no choice but to resign in a particular circumstance. Um, that is to argue constructive dismissal and pursue an individual claim. But that's usually not sort of what we're talking about with sort of the great resignation concept. It's more about people making their own free choice about how they want to have the rest of their career play out. And if they exercise their contractual right to resign and give a appropriate notice, then um, you know, that's the reality of the labour market. The employer needs to go and find someone to replace them. Yeah. So I think with the legislations that are in place, then they're just there to protect any, I guess, like wrongdoings by yeah. employers potentially. Yeah. 
so next question, um, which was also, I think, discussed in your episode, was mental health. So mental health has become a key focus for workplaces over the last decade, especially during COVID lockdowns and things like that. So do you see workplace health and safety legislation changing to adapt to this focus? I'm not sure that the legislation itself will change. We have gone through a debate over the last 12 to 18 months with the respective work report coming out from the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, and the response to that from the previous government um, about whether or not there should be a standalone duty to deal with sexual harassment. And the debate sort of then rolled on from that about whether or not there should be a standalone duty for managing psychosocial risk. So that could be harassment of other forms um, or bullying in the workplace or increased work demands as an, another example. Um, but the debate has effectively got to the point where um, it seems to be accepted by both the government and um, those who represent employees and employers that the duty to ensure health and safety includes mental health um, and that the regulators who are in this space, the safety regulators in particular, um, have got a renewed focus on this area. So they've developed now new codes of practice um, which have been promulgated and also guides. And I think we can see, um, well, perhaps not a change in legislation, but uh, greater emphasis by both employers on managing that risk uh, and putting in place control measures, but also from then regulators in enforcing um, the obligations to ensure health and safety for workers, which includes mental health. Uh, and that could be through soft enforcement actions such as investigations or improvement notices um, or prohibition notices, or it could lead to um, more significant prosecutions about mental health. Right. So do you think that's more of like an employer side thing to do within their company or is it more a macro? Oh, look, I think uh, employers have certainly got a renewed focus on it and, and certainly a number of our clients are taking some pretty proactive steps to put a safety lens on what has perhaps traditionally been thought of as an employment issue, not a safety issue, um, and to apply risk assessment type methodologies, um, what's called the hierarchy of controls that you then apply um, to effectively control risks that you've identified, um, and also just taking a different approach in relation to how they investigate complaints about harassment and bullying. So taking a trauma-informed approach to those matters, um, having an enhanced um, focus upon confidentiality uh, and considering what are the systemic issues that might come out of an investigation. So um, certainly has been sort of uh, something that both employees and unions have been drawing attention to but responded to um, pretty proactively by employers. So in a post-pandemic world, or almost post-pandemic, how do you think employment law, including workplace health and safety, will affect employees with hybrid working models? Yeah, look, I think the laws that we've got at the moment, uh, the work health and safety laws in particular, already take into account and are adaptable to circumstances of hybrid working. Um, the, the Australian legislation has, for a substantial period of time, focused upon the duties applying 
to um, workers, uh, a person conducting a business or undertaking owing a duty to workers while they are at work. And at work hasn't been confined to just at the workplace, at the physical workplace. It can include when people are performing work at other locations. uh, And one would say it's easily um, adaptable to employees performing work from their home. Um, We've certainly also seen workers' um, workers' compensation, that is, legislation also adapt. Um, So people who have injuries at their home office uh, or in conducting other activities when they're not in the workplace um, have been capable of being responded to by workers' comp legislation and claims. So I think the laws uh, are adaptable and already have sort of adapted in practice. Um, I think there may well be, um, by both employers and employees alike, a review of whether or not with the distinction between working time and personal time being somewhat more blurred in a hybrid working model, that we may see that there's a pursuit of um, a right to disconnect. Uh, so we've certainly seen that in the, in Europe, in France, um, there's legislation that provides a right for employees to disconnect, that is to turn off their mobile phones, to not answer um, emails um, in non sort of ordinary business hours working time. Um, so we may see that and become something that is pursued in Australia. Okay, that's really interesting to hear that other countries are implementing like time to yeah. set off because I think like with I'm not sure if it's like movies or media depiction with like big office jobs people have like laptops on vacation and things like that so hopefully that's a shift that will be for the better for like, Yeah, everyone. and I, I think as well given the topic that we talked about a moment ago about mental health, employers are already turning their minds to that, whether or not they implement formalised rules or systems. Um, But I think they are thinking of an employee's ability to effectively disconnect in a um, more general way um, in order to take a holiday and to not um, have to then be um, responding to to work-related requests so that you can then take time to to rest and recuperate. And there's just a general uh, benefit of that ultimately for productivity, but also for mental health and the ability to recuperate. Uh, just again going back to the idea of COVID and um, how workplaces are working now in terms of ensuring COVID safety how do you think like mandating all employees to be vaccinated or like ensuring masks are being worn etc like how is what are the I guess workplace regulations around that and how is that going to um, change. Yeah, well, look, I think we've already seen a cycle of change. So, you know, as we moved into the early phase of the pandemic in the start of 2020, uh, employers moved very quickly to um, consider what arrangements they needed to put in place for workplace hygiene, for social distancing. Um, obviously, then when we went into lockdowns, um, working from home arrangements for those parts of the economy that could um, have employees working from home. Um, and then we've gone through a further cycle of then considering when control measures like vaccinations were uh, available, and they weren't for a very significant period of the pandemic, um, but once they did become available, um, whether or not that was a reasonably practical control measure, and that's the wording under the Work Health and Safety legislation, uh, that should be implemented by employers. And in some industries, you've certainly seen employers have made that choice. They've done their own assessment of their risk. 
based upon the way in which their business operates, um, customer-facing um, or public-facing roles, uh, the closeness of interaction between workers that is just unavoidable, um, and whether or not other measures such as mask wearing, hygiene was reasonably practicable to um, effectively eliminate or as far as possible uh, minimise the risk and vaccination in certain industries tended to be something that could further minimise the risk or reduce the risk of both transmission but also then contraction and ultimately that leads to a transmission risk further um, in the workplace. So uh, uh, those employers who have implemented that have typically kept it in place. They're turning their minds to booster shots um, and the requirement for boosters. Uh, and I think you know, that will be enduring for a period of time. Um, as the risk starts to dissipate, then the control measures might be further relaxed. So we've already seen in the community control measures be relaxed. Um, employers are turning their mind to whether or not they ought to relax them as well or not. Um, but perhaps they're a bit more hesitant because of the higher standard that it applies to them, um, yeah. given that their obligations under the Act um, are ones that face criminal sanction if they don't get it right and they're prosecuted. Uh, they're not as perhaps quick to move to relaxing those if they consider that the relevant measures are capable of minimising the risk. And look, I think the reality is, um, I hate to say it, but we are currently living with the pandemic. Yeah. I don't think we're through the pandemic, and I think the stats show that um, we're definitely not through the pandemic. It, it will continue to be with us for a period of time, um, and unfortunately, potentially, we'll see other respiratory diseases that we need to deal with. The f possibility of influenza being the most immediate um, potential risk, but you know we've gone through the era of having to deal with avian influenza, um, swine flu, SARS. We've now had COVID-19. Um, unfortunately, it's likely that there'll be another respiratory pandemic at some point. Right. So you spoke a lot about the employers themselves making the decision and having the discretion of whether they want to implement harsher conditions or not. Um, in terms of termination then, what are their obligations there and when when is it legal and when is it, I guess, for lack of a better word, a little dodgy on their part? <laughs> well, employers uh, obviously have those duties under the work health and safety legislation that I've mentioned. So to ensure the health and safety of workers so far as it's reasonably practicable. Yeah. And then the follow on obligation, which is to minimise um, if the risk can't be eliminated, to minimise the risk as far as it's reasonably practicable. So... In undertaking that analysis, employers have decided, some of them, to implement vaccination requirements um, because it does minimise um, transmission in, in, a, in a way uh, and also obviously has an impact upon um, the contraction of serious illness or disease. Uh, and it also then at common law has an ability to give directions to its employees. So as long as the direction it gives to its employees is lawful and reasonable, um, the lawfulness aspect being effectively informed by the work health and safety legislation and it being reasonable that it's assessed the reasonableness of it and it's taken into account whether or not it's going to factor in um, a, a contraindication exemption for disabilities or other reasons that it might exempt people from the requirement. Um, if it complies with those lawful and reasonable um, direction obligations, 
then usually uh, non-compliance with such a direction by an employee will mean that that employee exposes themselves to disciplinary action, including dismissal. And the Fair Work Commission has, um, I think, without any exceptions that immediately come to mind, has um, found that employers have acted lawfully in terminating employees um, where they have decided not to comply with a requirement such as a vaccination requirement so far in the Commission. Yeah, that's good to hear then that employers and employees, I guess, are like adhering to proper measures. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to a more lighthearted note. Um, Do you have any interesting cases or clients that you have worked on or with? Oh, look, the, uh, probably one of the most um, interesting clients that I do work with is uh, Uber. Um, so being in the, in the gig economy, um, which there's been obviously a lot of um, focus on over the last few years, um, and um, just assisting it in both uh, having its business here in Australia um, continue yeah. to grow, uh, but also, and um, it, uh, it obviously has made some public statements about um, reforms in this area, but assisting it in dealing with um, the current regulation and how it applies, those regulations uh, or legislation obviously being um, developed many, many years ago before the gig economy existed. And so um, both Uber, but also regulators coming to think about how does that legislation currently apply, if it does or not, yeah. to their circumstance, as well as then considering um, how might the law um, be developed or shaped in the future um, in order to ensure the ongoing um, operation of that important sector of the economy yeah. and also that it provides flexibility to those who decide to work on that um, platform, um, which Uber is just one, there's many others. Um, so yeah, let's, it's a very interesting part of um, the work that I do, mainly because it's in that space of um, effectively a new part of the economy, yeah. um, effectively coming to grips with mm-hmm. both itself as a business but also regulators. Yeah. How does the law apply to it when the laws were written before yeah. that part of the economy even existed? Right. So from my understanding, the gig economy is made up of a lot of, I guess, individual contractors That's rather right. than employees. Yep. So in terms of the employer's side, they're obligations for work health and safety and protection and things like that are, I guess, lowered as a standard? Uh, Not necessarily. The work health and safety legislation applies to workers, um, which is a broader concept than just employees and includes um, also contractors and the employees of contractors and various other classes of of workers. So um, that legislation um, does apply in that sector um, and certain other regimes do apply to the sorts of work. Um, I think the policy question, which um, the government is coming to grips with, as uh, are others, is whether or not there ought to be additional regulation or new regulation, perhaps for the first time, um, which deals with um, independent contractors in that particular sector. Right. How fast do you think the law is going to move with the I guess, expansion of the gig economy? Uh, Well, it's been uh, relatively slow moving so far. Um, And certainly there's been calls by many sectors, including some of those in the the gig economy themselves, that regulatory reform should come about. Uh, But I think with the um, current federal government who's recently been elected, part of their platform was to regulate 
um, employee-like types of work, and clearly that was focused upon both the gig economy but also other sectors such as um, the care sector of the economy, so aged care, disabled care um, and the like. So I think it's on now the horizon before it really wasn't... um, being pursued in a meaningful way at least at the federal level but certainly started to be thought about at state levels. Yeah that's good and I think like with the law itself it's always got to go through like lots of discussions and things like yeah. that before yeah, anything solidify. Consultation obligations yeah. which are imposed upon uh, the government or they oppose, impose upon themselves before they um, effectively both develop legislation but then implement it. So last question for the day, Um, what types of cases or clients are the most challenging for you? Um, Look, there's different types of of cases that I find challenging but very interesting. I think some of the sort of finer points of criminal law, which can become quite technical, uh, which we do uh, in the work health and safety space, are quite um, intriguing and can be also challenging at the same time. I think the practically most challenging, though, um, which are more regularly encountered, are uh, matters in which, um, uh, and sometimes these are investigation-type matters that we deal with with employees, where there are you know various different interests at play, both the employer's interests, the employee's interests, and quite often um, other employees' interests. Um, which need to be um, factored in. And as we work through the investigation, trying to find solutions um, for uh, perhaps the individual that has complained, um, their co-workers, but also the employer that are going to be satisfactory to everyone is often the most challenging um, aspect of of, uh, the work that we do, which isn't necessarily um, providing a legal solution. Sometimes the legal solution to things are quite clear, but it's providing a workable solution for all those parties that are involved that they're going to be satisfied with um, and that they feel as though they've got an outcome that you know has met their needs or that they can be able to continue working with each other perhaps um, so those are sometimes the most challenging matters that we have to deal with okay awesome yeah so thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise we definitely have learned a lot more about employment law especially for me not anticipating like admin and contract and criminal law as well in in its intertwined so that's really interesting um and yeah thank you for sharing your expertise and just working in a big law firm in general that's my pleasure thank you so much for listening to insights by unsw law society if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to our podcast so you don't have to miss out on any future episodes